morning comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do that what is right, and you will be uh, commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what is owed them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So I was thinking this week about two different movies that kind of led us to the same point, reflecting on the role of media in culture, kind of a hot topic these days in our culture. But a few years ago, there was a movie Spotlight um, that was talking about the, uh, the telling the story of the the Boston Globe uh, breaking the story of the Catholic sex abuse scandal. Uh, and, and there was a scene there in that movie where the, the cardinal of the area of, I mean, Boston was meeting with this new editor of the, of the Boston paper, and he made this quote. The cardinal said to him in this meeting, he's being very friendly, and he said, look, he's talking about how we want to, we, I want to get along. We, we, we need to get along. We need to work together. And he says this. He says, I find that the city flourishes when its great institutions work together. Um, and the, the editor was a little gruff, kind of responded to him. He said, well, personally, I'm of the opinion that for a paper to best perform its function, it really needs to stand alone. We're not going to work together. We're going to have some independence here. And that, the whole film kind of unwound. And as they're breaking the story, it was the assertion of independence by that paper that freed them to break this incredibly controversial story. Um, and a similar thing, a couple years later, Steven Spielberg gave his movie The Post, talking about the Washington Post and the, the, uh, the release of the Pentagon Papers back in the 70s. Um, and, and in the course of that, there was this conversation where, uh, where Tom Hanks was uh, reflecting, he was the editor then of Breaking the Story, of his friendship with Jack Kennedy. He had been... Um, here was the, the, pa the papers were breaking during the, uh, the Nixon years, but he had been very close. It was an interesting insight into just the, the, how close-knit the Washington elite culture is. These people are breaking stories and investigating the very people that they're having dinner with that night or are going to a cocktail hour with and seeing. But, but here he realized it was almost this moment of regret that the Pentagon Papers were telling stories of essentially how every president since Kennedy had been lying to the American public for all sorts of reasons, but that he had realized that he, um, 
in his friendship with Jack Kennedy, he said Jack Kennedy was always aware that he was the media. Uh, he felt like he'd been used, and he realized he allowed himself to be used, and that, that was a sacrifice of the independence that he needed. And so here you had these two contrasting stories, one in which this media had to assert or maintained their independence, and in the other where they, they really had to recover that independence in order to do their job right. Um, in, in both of it, it's, an, it's a picture of, I think they're talking about how the media needs to, the phrase that I'll use, the, the media needs to stay in its lane. That there's a, there's a job or a role that the media has that it's going to have to go ahead and do uh, in order to do it right. Um, Lisa, go ahead and flash forward to the next slide. To be what they need to be, uh, many institutions, that's the wrong thing. So let's just go ahead and Let's just not do the slides today. They put the wrong one on there, so don't worry about that. Um, to be what they need to be, any institutions, media, government, business, needs to figure out how to stay in its lane. Um, they need to figure out what they need to do. Now, that's, that's how culture runs or how we're going to figure out what we're going to be, but I think there's a lesser to greater argument um, that, that you go. In fact, Lisa, just hit the, there's a black button. I think on the upper right corner, you hit the black, and it'll just black out the slides. We just won't have to worry about it. Um, from a lesser to the greater, theologically, the government uh, and the church each have a lane. And if we're to figure out what we're to be as the people of God, as the church, we need to understand what those lanes are. What, did, what does God give government for? What does God give the church for? And how can we get them to operate the way they're supposed to operate? And so let me start with this statement then, as we kind of pour into Romans 13. And if you're not there, I encourage you to open to Romans 13. It's a, it's a pretty dense passage. There's a lot going on there. But Romans 13 says this, that I think this, this summary, that government has the God-given authority to bear the sword. Now, there's a lot in that statement. Government has the God-given authority to bear the sword. The first idea is that government is from God. That's something you're going to see throughout this. If you just, even just skimming the first seven verses of Romans 13, as Paul is, is writing to the Romans, to the Roman church, he's writing to the center of power. This is a, like a letter to Washington, D.C., the church in Washington, D.C. They're, they're surrounded by power every day. The Roman church is deeply aware of what's going on with the emperor and what the rise and fall of the particular conversations in Rome. They are at the, the center of world power. And what he asserts again and again is that first, that all authority comes from God, that government authority comes from God. He says it in the first verse, there is no authority except from God. says it again in verse 2, whoever resists the authorities, that term authority, those who resist what God has appointed are those who resist, they will incur judgment. There's this sense of authority again and again. He describes these rulers as um, servants of God. Verse 4, he is God's servant for your good. The emperor is God's servant for your good. He is, verse 4, the, he is the servant of God. Again and again. Now that's, maybe, maybe we can swallow that depending on who's in office at the time and what you think of them. That may be easier or harder depending on the, the, the year. But for Paul, the most likely emperor that he's writing this uh, uh, who, who's in power at the time is Nero. Um, Nero had a pretty complicated history, but within a few years, 
he's going to turn hard against the church. In fact, already at this point, it may be possible that he's already thrown the Jews out of Rome for a season. I mean, there's been a lot of ugliness that Nero's already started doing. And ultimately, Nero's going to be the one that's going to likely, in terms of history and tradition, he's going to be the one that actually executes both Paul and Peter, and the one that institutes the first widespread persecution of the church. This is not a friendly guy here. Um, and for, for Paul to write this, no authority comes except from God. He is this, this idea that, that, that Nero is God's servant for your good, he's writing that about his future executor. That's a strange thing. And some people have wondered through the years, would Paul write it differently had he known the end of the story? And if he's writing this a few years from now, certainly he'd have more to say. Um, but I don't think he changes the basic point. This is an example of, of, of wisdom literature, and it's throughout Scripture. You're supposed to read the Proverbs, you get a lot of that. And the basic idea of wisdom literature is not some absolute rule, but a guide to life. He's given you general principles, these general things of how it generally is done. This is generally what happens, but he's laying that theological groundwork knowing there's going to be some times where there's some big exceptions. But the first thing he says here is that all government authority is delegated by God. All government authority. It's a delegated authority. Government does not institute the church. Government does not create the power of the church. It's coming from, the, the government's power is derived from God himself. God created it. Um, and in a sense, government is borrowing that power. Now, why does God create government? What does he do? Why is he doing this? And that's the second kind of theme word that shows up throughout this that I want you to see is notice how many times something related to the theme of justice shows up. Um, verse 2, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. This is the guy who's going to kill Paul. Generally, Nero is not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Um, and then you have the theme of, of, of wrath that shows up. Uh, verse 4, he is God's servant for you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. says it again in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. The wrath of God is on display when the government does what is meant to create, which it, its immediate purpose is to bring justice. Government exists to be an agent of justice, to bring order to the world. Now, if you want a context for this, I'll reference this just shortly, but I think there's a larger study you can do on this, but go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. We talked about this a little bit last year. In Genesis chapter 9, you, you're, this is right after the flood. The world's been destroyed. We're starting over. We got Noah and his family, this righteous man. And as, as, as he's preparing, God is preparing Noah for this new life, this, this, in a sense, this new creation um, he blesses them, charges them, but then he says, look, he says, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, and for your lifeblood I will require 
a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. This is 9 verse 6 is the famous verse. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now there's a lot going on there, but but one of the things that's happening, if you if you recall, in the set in the setup to the flood, one of the reasons why God decides to destroy the world is He looks down at the evil of man. Every inclination of His heart was only evil all the time. That's the judgment of the assessment that God has as He looks at the state of humanity, and He looks at that state. One of the things that's happening is murder. They're killing each other. This sin, this first great sin in, in, of the next generation after Adam and Eve, Cain killing Abel, has now been spread where there's this widespread killing. And so one of the things he's doing here in chapter 9 is creating this order, this law. There's going to be a system of justice. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There will be an accounting. If you kill somebody, you're going to die. That's, you know, and the modern debate, Genesis 9, verse 6, is usually quoted when we talk about the death penalty. Here's a biblical authorization of the death penalty. And that's certainly a piece of that conversation that needs to be in play, but there's a much broader point. This is, in a sense, a lot of folks see this is the, the, really the establishment of the concept of government. Who is it that's going to decide who dies? Who's going to decide who's guilt, guilty? Well, the ultimate answer is there's this this creation of government, that we are going to have a system to implement justice. And the reason why it exists is because if this doesn't exist, if you read all of chapter 9, you see it, it's, if that doesn't exist, then God's only other option is to destroy man again. This is God's way of restraining himself from doing what justice would require, which is the death of humanity all over again. If there's any hope for a future, it'll become because man, humanity, gets tasked with the job of doing justice here on earth as God awaits a greater justice later. And in the course of that, you see that move from verse 6 to verse 7. When there is this system of accountability, when there is justice, that's the context from which verse 7 happens, which is then Noah is fulfilling the charge that God gave Adam in the garden, which is to be fruitful and multiply populate the earth, fill the earth. This, uh, this uh, job to rule and to subdue the earth comes because of this establishment of government whose job is to bring justice to the world. The way that God empowers government to give, now we'll go back to Romans 13, the way he empowers them to do that is by giving them the sword, that's what that word that you see there in verse 4 in Romans 13, the power of the sword. And I think that's as useful a description, use that here in the next few weeks, to describe what the government's power is. The government has the power of the sword. Their job is to do justice, and they have the authority and the power to punish the wrongdoer. That's what life is like when you've got government. And they used that sword. They used that sword a lot. Now, they could use that for good, or they could use that for evil. And we could talk about all the different examples. And, of course, again, Paul is going to be killed by the very emperor that he's celebrating here in this moment. Um, so there are times the government will misuse and abuse that power. But their power, their job, is to do justice. That's why God created them. That's why God established government, and that is its role. Now, here's the second idea, that government serves 
to advance the gospel. Now that's maybe strange for us to think about, but let me make that point in two different ways. First, that a just and ordered society is the best context for the gospel to advance. A just and ordered society, I might even add a flourishing society, is the best context for the gospel to advance. Now I want to be careful here because I can I celebrate, I, I read, my, my, one of my daily devotionals is a, a devotional book from the Voice of the Martyrs, and they celebrate every day these stories of folks who've been martyred for their faith, imprisoned for their faith, and all the ways in which God has done extraordinary things in the midst of great persecution. You know, I was thinking, I was reading this week about, you know, as China has recently begun uh, stepping up its persecution of Christians again. It's always been one of the worst, but pastors are being imprisoned again because of their failure to register, or the failure to, if they preach a gospel that is deemed to be a, a hostile to the state, they're being imprisoned. But as they ramp up their persecution of Christians, we're reminded that there was a, about a 20-year period where the, the West was largely did not know what was going on inside of China. And most people thought at the height of the Cultural Revolution, as Mao Zedong mounted all this pressure, that the church was going to disappear in China, as it largely had in Japan when there was persecution there from the shoguns. And, you know, all throughout the East, there's been all this horrific history throughout the years of massive persecutions or execution of Christians that's had this horrible effect on the church. And yet, as in the 80s, as folks started to re-engage and realize what was going on in China, they realized that during that time, in massive persecution, massive government oppression, the church, the underground church, had flourished. It's one of the most extraordinary stories of, of the success and the spread of Christianity in the 20th century is, is its massive success in China in the midst of persecution. And yet, the, the the, the just and ordered society is generally the best context where the gospel is going to advance. And government serves us. It serves the advancement of the gospel even when it doesn't intend to. Even when it would rather not to. It serves the end of our worship. How did the government help you this morning in your worship? We thought about that? Well, everybody woke up this morning in houses hopefully that had heat and and water provided by public utilities. You got in cars that were hopefully re relatively clean and weren't doing significant damage to the environment because they'd passed their emissions test. And you got on roads that actually existed. They'd been built. <laughs> and sometimes, some of them were actually even maintained. Um, some of the potholes were filled. And um, occasionally they'd been maintained, but they probably most of you were able to get there with salt on the roads that kind of kept the road clear from that massive winter storm we were promised yesterday. But there was all these ways in which then you got here, and the fact is that you got here, one, you had a car, and you had a place, apartment, or home, and you had some place to live, uh, all of which is a context of a functioning economy where there's employment and opportunity. Um, you came here to a uh, a worship place that actually uh, has a tax exemption, so we're not paying property taxes for this building, so they can't put us out of business because they decide to tax us. Um, and in fact, we have the time to come here because we generally have a, rel a season of relative peace, and so here in Illinois, we don't have to worry about having a bunch of people go off and fight those Canadians to our north because there's relative peace. And all of that is ways in which government is functioning to create a context where here we can stand and proclaim that not government is God, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a, all of that is a context in which the government is serving the end of our worship. 
And that's true not just for the best of governments, but also for the worst of governments. I mean, I just cited all these things that are functioning here in Illinois. And let's be honest, Illinois is generally a punchline for government mismanagement. But nonetheless, you know, the roads still actually function reasonably well. They're certainly better than the way they function in Ghana, I can assure you. We had a better time getting to our church this morning than a lot of our ministers that we're sponsoring here and supporting throughout Ghana. But even there, even the worst governments can serve to advance the gospel. In their success, even the worst of them built roads and they built infrastructure and they tried to provide ways to have economic opportunity and jobs. But even when they fail, even the worst governments, the North Koreas of the world, sometimes they do some things right, but regardless, their gospel is still advancing, even if it's in contrast and despite their efforts. Um, you can connect Genesis 9 to Romans 13. I think those are two really important chapters to connect in the Bible to build a theology of government. But you can also, I think, pair with it Revelation 6. We're going to look at more of that here later this year. But Revelation 6, the kings of the earth are hiding because the Son of Man has returned with a sword. <laughs> He's bringing justice to the nations. And those that have done injustice, that is those nations, those governments who abused their authority, who used that call to justice to do injustice, are drinking judgment on themselves. And they are cowering in fear that the sword that they once held has now been taken away and is being lifted up by the Son of Man to bring judgment against them, to call them to account. That alone is another way in which government is advancing the gospel. So that's what government does. That's the work of government. Government is, is creating order. It's establishing order. It's doing its job is to do God's justice, not its own. The government doesn't get to define what justice is. God defines what justice is. And government leaders are held eternally accountable for the way they administer the justice the justice of God, and they do so with that very real power of the sword. Now, here's the trick for us as Christians. While the government wields the power of the sword, the church does not. The church doesn't have the power of the sword. We're going to talk next week about what power the church has, but it's not the power of the sword. The government can't use the sword to do the church's job. We've got a job to do that doesn't happen because the, the, the government picks up the sword for us and does our job for us. This is the problem in a lot of different things, but it's the problem really of Christendom. The idea throughout, you saw this a lot in medieval Europe, that there would be this tight marriage between, between government and church. Imagine a government that issues, as happens in China, a license to preach. I've got to go and get permission from my government before I can preach to you. I've got to have a license to preach. I've got to have a government who is going to approve what Bible translation I'm going to use. That happens in China today. It happened in medieval Europe. People were going to die if they bothered to actually preach this morning with an English translation instead of a Latin translation of the Bible. There's a license to preach or a government enforcement of a Bible translation. What happens if that's the context? What happens if the only way that you can be a citizen is if you submit to the state-approved religion? What if you had, as you saw throughout Muslim conquest, the idea that you're either going to convert or you're going to die? Well, 
you're going to have a whole lot of false conversion. And you're going to have a whole lot of confused identity. What if your baptism, as was often the case throughout Christendom, throughout medieval Europe, what if your baptism was a baptism into citizenship in the nation as well as it was into the church? How authentic is that baptism? A baptism that is fundamentally about your submission to faith in Christ. Well, it's confused, and that's the problem. That's the problem when the government picks up its sword to do the church's job. There needs to be a sense that there's two different lanes. There's the lane of government and the lane of church, and they're doing two different things. One historian was talking, I was listening to a conversation one time where they were talking about the state of Europe and the decline of the churches. You know, they call it the land of empty churches. You've got all these beautiful cathedrals and all this stunning history and then you've got church after church where they can't even, you know, many of them can't even keep the doors open because there's just no members, there's nobody around. And this historian said, well, just remember, Europe, um, Europe was conquered, not converted. Um, that's the problem of Christendom. This, this, this veil of Christianity was, um, was covering Europe with, because of the sword, the power of the sword. And when the power of the sword was taken away, that thin veil proved to be a false gospel, the false conversion. There was no depth to this. There was no sustaining power. Europe was conquered, not converted. A reminder that government needs to stay in its lane. Um, and so that affects how we do our work. The church works differently in our culture because we want government to stay in its lane, because the church doesn't have the power of the sword, and we don't want the power of the sword. We don't want the government to do our job, and we don't want to partner with the government's power to accomplish our end. We've got something different to do. That's going to be, it's going to shape how we have that conversation. Now, that's going to mean a couple different things. I want to mention this now, and then we'll talk more about it in the next couple weeks. But as we think about issues in our day, I think one useful distinction, Jonathan Lehman uh, introduced this to me, but it's the distinction between straight-line issues and jagged-line issues. In straight-line issues, we're going to be dealing with issues in our culture where there is a direct connection between morality and policy, where there's a direct connection between God's justice. This is how you treat people. This is how God wants the world to operate and the policy that we have. And I think, you know, the, 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 the issue that awakened the conservative church, the evangelical church almost 50 years ago was the issue of abortion. I think that's one of those straight line issues. I would make a case that it, you, you can't read scripture well unless you understand God's value on human life. In fact, that's why Genesis 9 is written the way it is, because human life matters. And so one of the things, one of those straight line issues that we advocate for as the church is the, the, the value of human life, and that means we value the unborn, we value the elderly, we value the poor, we value the immigrant, we value the refugee, we value people that are often overlooked in our culture. And I've been unborn, of course, one of those that are often overlooked and discarded. Um, and so that's one of those straight line issues that is going to be a direct connection where the church collectively is, needs to and should speak up to say, hey, there's an issue here. We've got to value people. And we've got to be able to identify those straight-line issues to say, these people matter. God's justice matters. This is what God asks of us. And if we're to be a just culture, if we're going to be a, church, a culture that's not going to be drinking judgment on itself for the way that we treat people, 
We've got to speak well of this. And I think, you know, we've got to acknowledge, we've got some, I'll talk more about this next, in the next two weeks, but we've got some particular nuances here in our culture because it's a participatory republic. We've got an accountability for how we vote and how we participate, and we've got a voice at the table. I expect our responsibility looks a little different for living in China, North Korea, other places where we don't really have a vote. Um, but in straight-line issues, we d- identify those direct connections from morality to policy. Even so, there's jagged-line issues. And even on some of those straight-line things, you know, we've got this basic principle, okay, we value the lives of the unborn. Now, that doesn't tell you how you're going to vote necessarily. It's not really going to tell you about what kind of policy you're going to have. There's a lot of discussion about, well, what, should we pass this kind of law? Should you pass that kind of law? Should you vote for this kind of person or that kind of person? There's going to be a lot of jagged line issues. And in jagged line issues, unlike straight issues, that, that, that there is, it is not a clear link between morality and policy. And in fact, what we need to do is have wisdom in how we apply morality to policy. One of the myths of our culture that we need to dispel is the silliness that, um, that we don't legislate morality. We legislate morality all the time. All law is a legislation of morality. Every single thing, every law we pass, even the most innocuous regulation. Is it a morality issue that we require that you drive on the right side of the road instead of the left? Absolutely. Now, does it matter whether you're driving on the right or the left? Well, not really, except when you're driving on the left and everyone else is driving on the right. Then you're creating chaos and disorder and creating lots sorts of, all sorts of accidents and you're not valuing human life. So there is a morality in play when you say we're going to have order and we're going to have structure and guess what? Everyone's going to drive on the right. There's all sorts of morality. We, we legislate morality every single day. We are, if we're to be in the public sphere talking about what we're going to legislate, we're legislating morality in every single thing that we do. It's just a matter of what that morality is driven by, what is moral and what is immoral. But there are issues where there are, we need to have wisdom, and there's going to be disagreements within the church about what is the best approach. How do you apply morality to policy in this case? And that'll be issues like partisan membership. You know, what party should you belong to? Is every Christian going to be a Republican? Is every Christian going to be a Democrat? Well, I hope not. Because I really shudder to think what those parties would look like if there were no Christians having any seasoning influence in those parties. That'd be horrifying to me. Um, there, there's going to be your partisan membership. Think about things like immigration policy. We can value the immigrant. We can value the refugee. Um, that's not going to tell you the answer. I mean, many presidents since Harry Truman have been brought down by trying to figure out immigration policy. It's hard to figure it out. Uh, but you can have some basic principles and values in play. We may have disagreements from person to person about the best way to enforce that at a policy level. You can th- think about strategy and tactics, even in the abortion debate. There's a lot of tactics. You s- even people who are vehemently pro-life will say, well, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't pass that law because that's just creating a crisis we don't need to create. We need to do it this way. There's a lot of disagreements. One of the things in, in law, they talk about joint and several liability. Then joint liability, this is the things that we do together. We're jointly liable. We're in this together. There's several liability, which is the individual liability we have. Here, as we think about those straight line versus jagged line issues, we as the church should be speaking clearly, jointly on straight line issues and severally on jagged line issues. We speak together on those issues where there is a direct connection from morality to policy And we acknowledge our pursuit of wisdom and give grace to one another as we figure out all of those jagged line issues. The church doesn't have the power of the sword, 
but we are living under the sword. And so what do we do? And here's my th- a couple of suggestions for you as we think to understand how Romans 13 makes sense for us today. First, as Christians, we are to work prophetically for God's justice. We are to be prophets in our culture, speaking of God's justice. This is what God asks of us. This is what God requires. This is how we should value people. This is how people matter to God and how it affects us. And so when I say that word prophetically, the reason why I say that is because that is a, the, the prophet's work is a work that emphasizes faithfulness and not success. Politics is all about success, and if you've got to compromise it away to get the success, go for it. So we enter the political culture. We enter our public sphere. We're entering a culture that we've got to reverse the priority. We prioritize faithfulness, not success. We don't need to win. We, need to be, we win by being faithful to God's word and how we speak and how we live. As Christians, we are to be prophets for God's justice. Second, as Christians, we are to be good citizens most of the time. Well, we generally obey, as Paul would, um, but there are very real instances of civil disobedience that we are called to. Paul will find himself in Acts 19, he'll be put on trial and they say, I can find nothing wrong with this man. But there are times that when he's preaching the gospel, he'll induce riots among people. He'll comply with the government, except to the extent that he owes a greater allegiance to God. And when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, preaching the gospel, there is no compromise. And, and, and that is the point at which our duty to be good citizens ends because we owe something greater. We have rendered under Caesar what is Caesar's, but now it is time to render under God, to God what is God's. The third, we need to do our work with an awareness of government's limited purpose and benefits. Government has a very real and a very good, but a very limited purpose. The work of government, the work of politics and policy is temporary. And the church's work is eternal. The nation that we live in is an idea. The church preceded it, and the church will survive it. The government is a means. The church, as the gathered and redeemed people of God, is the end to which government exists. The church, as the gathered and redeemed people of God, is, a, is, a, is an entity that will exist into eternity, long after every nation has fallen and disappeared. Our citizenship in our nation is real, but it is far less than our citizenship in God's kingdom. Our judgments and expectations of governments and government leaders should be limited accordingly. We resist the idolatry of our age. We resist the hero worship of our age. We're not looking for a savior when we vote in November. We're looking for a leader. And we'll support them, and we'll pray for them, and we'll even advocate for them as long as they stand with God's justice. And where they don't, we will choose the path of the prophet and opt for faithfulness over success. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. As we live in a government that bears a sword that is given to it by God, we as the church should be seeking justice, 
to be lovers of mercy and in all things to be choosing to walk in, in humility before our God. Let's pray. God, teach us to honor you in the way that we interact in our culture, the way that we speak on those straight line issues of your justice, the way that we give grace and love to one another as we learn how to disagree in the midst of the exercise of wisdom. Help us to honor you in all things. In Christ's name, amen. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.